Welcome to the Brizo Magazine podcast. Article originally uploaded December 27th, 2018. Immigration, the Selfish Perspective by Guillermo Silva Harva, read by Sam Toon. On whether immigrants cause intolerance or protect us from it. Le Pen, Farage, Salvini, Orban, Kurtz, Trump, far-right xenophobia is vogue across the West. The fear or rather hatred of immigrants and foreigners is arguably shaping our political landscape more than any other ideology. Nations that were considered bastions of liberal democracy are crumbling under its weight. The European Union, arguably the most ambitious attempt at increasing international freedom of movement, is growing smaller and weaker. Authoritarianism clawing its way into power in the East. The US, the land of the tired, the poor, the huddled masses, calling immigrants rapists, has been validated as a path to the presidency. Amidst the political revolution against internationalist tendencies, one can't help but wonder what is responsible for their rise. Not responsible in a philosophical way, meaning ethically accountable, but rather in a practical one, as in what variable caused this chain of events? For many, on both sides of the political spectrum, the answer is undisputable, large-scale migration. The idea that a large influx of foreigners triggers xenophobic hatred appears logical at first. It suggests that immigrants move to a nation, they compete for employment with locals, depressing their wages. Similarly, partly thanks to sensationalist media coverage of terrorism, many associate migration with higher crime rates. The above could, in the eyes of some, trigger populist backlash. Immigration would be, in short, reducing tolerance and threatening our liberal democracies. This explanation can be tempting. If destructive and unorthodox political outcomes were fueled by excess migrants, the solution ought to be as simple as reducing their number. Such a viewpoint implies that, but for the increase in the immigrant population, our societies would have remained safely anchored to conventional parties and political moderation. Essentially, it shifts the responsibility for the current upheaval from the policies of the political establishment to the migrants themselves. This approach has proved appealing to some high-ranking politicians, such as German Chancellor Angela Merkel. Mrs Merkel, who once welcomed a million refugees into her country, recently agreed to border camps for migrants, hoping to salvage her Bavarian coalition partner from their rise of the far-right AFD. There is just one caveat. Socio-economic analysis discredits such an interpretation. Even as immigration rose, crime fell across the West, not least in Mrs Merkel's own nation, where it plummeted to its lowest level since 1992. Even if migrants can slightly depress the wages of low-income workers, the academic consensus is that their overall economic impact is positive. Increasing aggregate demand and slowing the demographic ageing of recipient countries. Even concerns over their fiscal impacts are overstated, as they are usually unable to claim welfare benefits. The purported damaging side effects of immigration are minimal or non-existent. So, given that its societal impact is relatively minimal, how has the immigration managed to remain in the public spotlight, let alone to command such influence on our democracies? The explanation could be that the current political discourse is, to some extent, divorced from reality. Policy is increasingly derived from ideology rather than from empirical evidence, frequently becoming contradictory. The same policy that defends reducing migration for fiscal reasons supports doing so by building a border wall costing upward of 20 billion US dollars. Still, this doesn't tackle the key issue at hand. If immigration isn't responsible for xenophobia, 
and the reduction of tolerance, what is. To understand what lies behind the current surge in xenophobia, it is vital to analyse its precedents. The United States provides perhaps the best historical examples, given its tumultuous and well-recorded interactions with foreigners. In the 1870s, as the economy slowed down in what is known as the Long Depression, animosity towards Asian immigrants skyrocketed, culminating in the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. The legislation, which was in place for over six decades, barred any Chinese citizens from immigrating to the United States, and it was accompanied by riots against existing communities. Barely 50 years later, the Great Depression triggered the Mexican repatriation, with Mexicans and Mexican-Americans who were blamed for the economic downturn being deported by the hundreds of thousands. In both these examples, the falling living standards and average incomes closely correlated with the rise of xenophobia. This is hardly coincidental. Several sociological studies, such as a 2004 report by the International Labour Organization, have established a link between economic security and tolerance. Essentially, civil society is more open to pluralism when its well-being is assured, but less so when the state of affairs, defined for instance by unemployment or wage growth, worsens. Under these circumstances, migrants can often become scapegoats for an underlying societal decay that is largely unconnected to them. Society falls into nativist tendencies and diverts its attention from the complex problems that increase its socio-economic insecurity to the easily identifiable other the archetype of the job-stealing immigrant who can bear the onus of their troubles. From an anthropological perspective, we are predisposed to blame an outsider for the ills of our group, even when they are internal in nature. This isn't meant to downplay the relevance of ethnocentrism and racial prejudice on recent political decisions. Rather, it explains how the economy and cultural bias are interrelated, how existing preconceptions of other social groups can remain somewhat dormant under prosperity and galvanise under hardship. Our current wave of intolerance is hence rooted in economic anxiety and anger against the failures of economic system. Perhaps the most likely culprits are the stagnation of the middle class wages, with partial erosion of purchasing power in some communities and the intertwined rise in inequality. This could also explain why other nations with proportionately large migrant populations have managed to retain or increase the societal tolerance for newcomers. In the case of Canada, for instance, no far-right political party has risen against its 21.9% foreign-born population, even as it increased its intake in 2016 to the highest level in six years. The cause for this intolerance might be partially cultural, but it's also undoubtedly linked to its continuously high wage growth. Should the US economy be reminiscent to that of Canada, it seems unlikely that populism would have flourished. Once we accept that xenophobia is separate from the immigrants themselves, the arguments in favour of drastically reducing immigration falter. If migrants reflect, rather than provoke, a decrease in social tolerance, cutting their number would not reduce the populist backlash. Indeed, implementing such a policy could have two different outcomes. The cuts to immigration could hypothetically coincide with an increase in socio-economic security. In this scenario, the policy which implemented them would only be emboldened strengthening nationalistic tendencies. Such is the case of soft Eurosceptic Viktor Orban in Hungary, who promoted a moderate economic improvement as he implemented anti-migrant policies, leading to his re-election by a significant margin in 2014 and 2018. His bigotry has been reaffirmed and strengthened but remains largely focused on immigrants. Such a course of events is by far the better alternative. 
When the migrant population is low or a receding problem during a crisis, the outcome can be far more dangerous. As asserted before, society looks for demographics to blame for the broader struggle of the group. Should it fail to find an external other to stigmatise, the underlying anger and unease would be diverted to national subsectors of society, such as political factions, members of the LGBT community or ethnic minorities. Precedents for such a conduct are easily identifiable in recent politics. Prior to the rise in migration in 2015, Orban's party ostracised other groups, with an MP claiming that homosexuality was a mental illness and aiming to ban pride, whilst another alleged that Roma women purposefully hit their bellies with rubber hammer to birth handicapped kids entitled to welfare. Thus, migrants serve as a buffer group, fulfilling the role of societal enemy effectively and preventing the other groups from doing so. It is especially noteworthy that the struggles they endure, even deportation, whilst traumatic, undesirable and frequently inhumane, are relatively less damaging than those suffered by a native-born. They can return to their home country or attempt to migrate elsewhere, and usually value their improved living standards relatively more than the bigotry they endure. Native-to-be scapegoats face harsh legal discrimination and, lacking an origin country to return to, are potentially more exposed to long-lasting suffering. Preserving migrants and working to ensure they are accepted could be one of the most effective mechanisms to prevent a further fragmentation of civil society. From a purely selfish national perspective, reducing immigration would be detrimental to the interest of native citizens. If the West truly desires to increase tolerance, it must focus on the roots of its social insecurity, tackling falling incomes and rising inequality, whilst allowing migrants to keep enriching our society and protecting our most vulnerable from their fellow countrymen. Thank you for listening to the Brizo Magazine podcast. If you liked what you heard, feel free to scroll through more episodes and take a listen. Or alternatively, read the original article and more online at brizomagazine.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at brizo.magazine, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash brizomagazine, and keep up with our issue releases on our website. Join us every Monday and Friday on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts for more episodes just like these. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again.